What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Nation? We are back again with another episode that I'm excited to bring to you because we are going to tap into just about everything. We're going to tap into how you can make sure that you're controlling your destiny today. But also, if you're somebody who maybe you're at rock bottom and you want to figure out what do I need to do? What are the steps for me to be able to create a life by my design? I believe we have the perfect person here to tell us about that. So without further ado, please help me and welcome welcoming Miss Sherry Jackson to the show. Sherry, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? Hello, everybody out there. And thank you so much for having me on Dream Nation. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, I always like to make sure we start off with the proper introduction. And the way that I do that is I always compare us as entrepreneurs and thought leaders and change makers to superheroes. And the reason why I say that is because we're constantly putting on a cape we're changing into our costume and we're flying around the world and we're trying to solve the biggest problems in the world. And so before you became this massive problem solver, before you became a, a wealth advisor, talk to me about when you can look back as just a young girl, who is Sherry Jackson? Sherry Jackson was, uh, you know, the statue that's in New York, the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. That's who I, I look at myself as when I was younger, because I was always after justice. Even as a nine-year-old, when I saw injustice, I spoke up. So that's who I was. Got it. Love it. Now, what, did you come from a background of maybe you've seen a lot of things that you necessarily shouldn't have saw and that angered you? Or how did you, where did that come from of like, I, I always got to speak up? I don't know where it was just it's inside me, you know, so I went to a school in high school that was predominantly Caucasian and they were doing a lot of stuff and I always spoke up. But even before that, anytime I saw something that was wrong, it was like I just had to bring it forth and then try to correct it. It's always been there. Got it. What uh, what was your childhood like growing up? Like, did you did you grow up in a big family? Did you grow up to a single parent? What was that like for you? Well, I'm originally from Detroit, east side of Detroit. Both my parents were together. I, they got divorced when I was 14, but up until then, they were together. And, uh, you know, you get your formative years by the time you're eight. So there were a lot of things that I learned as a young girl in Detroit going through the riots. And I'm, I'm dating myself, but that's okay. Going to, through those riots and all that. So there are a lot of things that you form in your head. My father decided that uh, he was going to leave Detroit. He saw the writing on the wall with... Uh, GM and all of those a long time ago. So he had come down to Atlanta and he figured that this was the black Mecca that was going to be in, you know, you know, Atlanta. So we moved here in uh, 71. So it was a big transition for a kid, but I made the transition. And, you know, since then, the, the difference in the cultures between Detroit and Atlanta are, they used to be very, very different. Now they're a lot the same because a lot of people are moving here. But back then, you know, it was just a typical lower middle class family. You know, we, we had a house and, you know, one TV and one car, that kind of thing. So it was, uh, but my father was very instrumental. And, and, and you know, in, in our community that the father is the bedrock of the community. And when he's not there, then we get what we have now. 
So he was there to teach me things. Uh, he was there to teach me to make sure that I understand delayed gratification and understand the different things that are going on and with a woman, you know, who we are and to value ourselves. So I had that kind of serious, solid rock upbringing, along with the fact that I had a big mouth when it came down to justice. Got it. So when now you, you finish off high school, you're in Atlanta, did you then go pursue like criminal justice or, you know, did you always want to be an attorney? So you said, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. Or what did that look like for you? It's so funny because the vice principal of my high school was a black woman and she actually set up an appointment with my parents and I didn't know what it was about, but when I got there, she was trying to urge them to get me to go into law. But even then, as an 11th grader, I knew that I couldn't pursue the law because I knew that what they were doing was not just. It was not the justice system. It was the unjust system. And I didn't want any part of it. So when I was about 15 years old, my dad brought home a Black Enterprise magazine. And he flipped it open to somewhere in the middle. And he said, you need to read this because you like nice things. And in that particular magazine was the the 100 most lucrative careers for Black people. So I started going through that. And, it, you know, he had the doctor, the lawyer, all that other stuff. And I looked at it and I said, oh, well, you know, engineering was there. First of all, doctor, I didn't want to deal with people in blood. Engineering, my uncle was uh, already at Tuskegee Institute in the engineering program. And when he would come home for breaks, I would look at those books and I was like, no. No. <laughs> but then I saw accounting and I said, okay, I'm a pretty good math student. I can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Let's look at that. And so at that point at 11, I mean, in the 11th grade, I knew that I wanted to uh, pursue an accounting career. So after I finished high school, I actually joined my uncle at Tuskegee Institute my freshman year. I did not stay there uh, for three reasons. Number one, it was out of state and the out of state tuition was astronomical. And even back then, my Spock logic said, you're going to have a, a, a really big student loan if you stay here. And after midterm, my father somehow found out that the business school wasn't accredited at that time. Mm. So he said, you can stay there, but if you stay there, you're going to have three strikes against you. You're Black, you're a woman, and you will be graduating with, from a school that, that where the business school is not accredited. So after the freshman year was over, I decided to transfer back in-state, and I uh, attended the University of Georgia to finish up my undergraduate career, which was very, very different, seriously night and day from Tuskegee. I mean, you go from everybody being a big family at Tuskegee to you got the KKK marching on the campus at the University mm -hmm. of Georgia, and the, the fraternities and sororities dressing up in blackface and putting tutus on and running around like they're in the middle of what they think Africa is. So, and I would call the police and I actually called in bomb threats before. This was before that was, yeah, this was long before that was like a, a real federal yeah. capital crime, but they would be out there doing it now and would say there's a bomb out there. Just to be, <laughs> that's just who just I was. break them all up. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's, so, that's, that's who I was in, in high school and college. And I, I guess I didn't really ever calm down. <laughs> Got it. No, so, and, and and that's crazy. And we're definitely going to tap back into that. But one of the things that I was amazed by was your story of how you really came from the deep, deep bottom where it seemed like everything was going well for you. You had then got into taxes. So you were pursuing what you had thought was your dream, your goal, things like that. And you're working in what you know, which is math. And then all of a sudden you hit a rock bottom time. And can you walk us through that? What did that, what happened? 
Okay, so after college, I got jobs at CPA firms, and I realized I didn't want to work at a CPA firm. I wanted to be a CPA, but I didn't want to work at CPA firms because it was very strenuous, and particularly the firms that I was working at, they had me working like a Hebrew slave. So I eventually quit that and went into corporate America. That's when I realized that corporate America is so political. It's not what you know, it's who you know and what you do with who you know. And I wasn't going for that either. So I didn't stay in corporate America very long. I saw an ad in the paper for a job at the IRS as an internal revenue agent. And I said, okay, well, that's math, it's auditing, I can do that. So in 1988, I took a job at the IRS and I stayed there from 1988 to 1995. And first it was, you know, I'm thinking that I'm helping our government collect the correct the correct amount of tax. Then I started just, and I'm making a really, really long story, very compact. I started hearing and that the income tax was being misrepresented and misapplied to the American people. So I quit the IRS for family reasons. You know, I, I became a mother, I was married, and the IRS climbing the ladder at the IRS and basically anywhere, it's gonna take a lot of time away from your family. And at that time, I made a decision that I was gonna quit and, and be at home be June Cleaver, because my family was was missing what they were supposed to be getting and a wife and a mother. Got and it. when I quit, I think the people started being less afraid to talk to me about this income tax thing. So people started talking and I started taking the information in. And at some point, somebody showed me some information in the USA Today, uh, where there was a former, another former IRS agent from the Criminal Investigation Division and an ad uh, by okay. We the People Foundation for Constitutional Education up in New York, and it said, Dear We the People, the income tax is a fraud. So obviously, I was interested in reading this USA Today article, and I read it, and it basically gave a lot of codes and regulations to say that the income tax is being uh, misrepresented to us. And within the body of that ad were two things. The other IRS agent had written a book, and I ordered that book, and then there was a $50,000 challenge to anybody that could prove through the law that we, are, we, we as Americans are liable for the income tax. And I, I wanted that money. So I went after that ad and, you know, over a course of weeks and then months, I couldn't find what I was looking for because I still had the codes and regulations. So I started speaking out about it. Of course, that's me, that big mouth. Hey, wait a minute. Is this, this, this looks wrong. And what I'm looking at is, you know, we're not the ones that are liable for the income tax. And so I hooked up with these people in New York and the other uh, former agent. And we had an ad in the USA Today. And then we were on 60 Minutes. And then Aaron Russo, which made Trading Places, he was the director of Trading Place Murphy. Right. Yeah. Right. He did a documentary and it's still out there online. It's called America Freedom to Fascism. So he had us come out to Hollywood and we filmed this documentary basically asking, you know, where's the law that requires people to file? And then the government started going after us. Make a long story short, they 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 tried to prosecute Joe Bannister, which is the other agent. He was the IRS criminal investigation division agent that had done a, re a research and re a report and turned it into his superior saying, hey, it looks like something's wrong. And they add, they told him he needed to resign. That's where that little book came from. So we started traveling around and we were doing seminars and we weren't telling people to file or not to file or to pay or not to pay. We were telling people to do their own research, do your due diligence and figure out whether you're gonna be a slave or get off the plantation. And that's exactly what I used to say. And that ticked the government off. So they, they prosecuted Joe first because he was the darling of what they call the tax movement. And they lost because number one, he had a thinking jury. Number two, he had a great legal team. And they were able to show that Joe really believed what he was saying. And that's all you have to do. You have to prove that the person 
believe that they're not liable for the income tax. And then they prosecuted a couple of other people. There was a lawyer in Shreveport, Louisiana, that they prosecuted, and he won his case because he came up with Supreme Court cases that says that income is corporate profit. Mm. By the time they prosecuted me, they had learned their lesson, and they sent people down to Atlanta from Washington, D.C. to prosecute me. They wouldn't let my evidence in. They wouldn't let any of my movies in because they let Joe show the movies that he had created when he was talking to people. Yeah. All of that was shut down. And I was I was actually brought up on misdemeanor charges of willful failure to file. They came and raided my house in 2004. Couldn't find a felony. So in 2007, they decided that they were going to do an information. That's when you bring people up on charges of a misdemeanor. And they actually prosecuted me. And the jury was so scared to not back the government in my case that I was convicted on a misdemeanor charge of willful failure to file tax returns and sentenced to four years in a federal prison. Now, wow. some of your listeners might know that a misdemeanor, the definition of misdemeanor is one year. But what the judge did, based on what the government told her to do, is stack four one-year sentences on top of each other for four years that I made money and not reported it on a tax return, and it was six figures. So basically, they made the jury hate me because I was a six-figure earner not paying taxes. And wow. uh, when I got sentenced, this uh, Southern woman, uh, judge, because I was defending myself and saying, I, you know, this is, I've learned these things and you, you blocked me. And this is what she said. And I'm going to use her voice. I know you homeschool your children, Miss Jackson. And I know you got a lot of family support, but you can't run around the country telling people not to file income taxes. And I looked her dead in the eye and I said, I've never done that because, you know, I've never done that. I've never told people what to do. We made a pact not to tell people what to do. We just gave information. Right. And so it wasn't that just let me know that that whole trial wasn't about the fact that I withheld my own money, that I kept what I earned. It was about the fact that I was teaching people the truth. So you got people out there murdering people. You got people raping babies and all that. And they get nothing or they get, you know, two or three years. I got a four-year sentence on a misdemeanor charge. Wow. I went to prison. I spent three of those four years in a federal prison. We won't go into all the stuff that happened while I was there. But when I came out of prison after the three years, they gave me six months good time because I was the model uh, prisoner and six months halfway house. So that's how I got out in three years. So I had to start at rock bottom. No more six figures. I had given up my licenses, my CPA license and my CFE license, I sent all that back to them because when they when they prosecuted Joe Bannister, even though he won his case, the IRS was so angry that they went into these agencies and said, take his CPA license, take his licenses. And they did. They, they did, even though he was acquitted. So I knew what was going to happen. So I gave my licenses up the day after my trial because I wasn't going to have them be able to say they took my license. I gave them up voluntarily. Yeah. So here I am starting. I, I have a, a, a bachelor's in administra a business administration, and that's it. And I'm starting at rock bottom, came out, uh, ended up separating, you know, getting a divorce eventually because stuff went on when I was gone and stuff still was still going on. So here I am at rock bottom. I, I created a system called the KPG system. And this system means keep what you earn, protect what you earn, and grow what you earn. And I actually used that system with me as, you know, the test subject. And that's where I started from rock bottom back to six figures. Wow. That's such a, a crazy and powerful story. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, you said Mr. Bannister and it was Joseph. Was it Joseph yes. Bannister? Yes. Is he white or is he black? 
Yes. He was white. And he, so essentially he got off with nothing besides them taking his license. No, they, they, they got him for a whole bunch of money. And I'm not the only one that was prosecuted. I'm basically the only black person that was out there in the movement. Some of my other white compatriots got convicted also. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a race issue. It was an issue of number one, he had very good attorneys. Number two, the IRS, by the time they got to my trial, they just could not stand to lose another trial because I believe the whole income tax system would have blown apart because you got all these people winning against the IRS and it would have emboldened other people to keep what they earn. So got it just it. couldn't happen. Right. I got it. Do you still believe that uh, the uh, information has now just been suppressed or do you still feel like everything that you learned back then, it was the exact truth? Because if that's the case now, are you that next year when you got out, did you find another way to like not have to pay the income taxes and things like that? Or, or is it like, nah, I mean, I can't go through this again because I've already been convicted once. So I think I should probably pay the income taxes. Well, what I did, and, and my mentors think I thought it was crazy at first, but I turned around and I wrote a book, How to Stick It to the IRS, Confessions from a Former Insider. And they said, you know, you just got out of prison. You got the balls to write a book called Stick It to the IRS. I said, they stuck it to me. I'm sticking it back to them. <laughs> so yes, I believe that this is still true. There's nothing to change. The research didn't change. The information didn't change. It's just that when you when you, when you you have truth and they go against you, you have to make a decision. Just like you said, I have to make a decision whether I'm going to put my, my life in that kind of jeopardy again or whether I'm going to find another way. So what I did and what Joe did and others did was we took a, store, a sword and we tried to cut the head off the beast. Right. So instead of trying to cut the head off the beast, what I've done is find a way to starve the beast. And 99% of the people in this country are not going to try to cut the head off the beast. So in helping the 99% of the people who are not going to go out there and be loudmouth like me, that KPG system helps them. Now you do file a tax return, but you get it down to just about nothing. You know, you write off everything but the kitchen sink, just like your president, just like uh, Netflix, just like Amazon. Did you know Netflix and Amazon? And if you look it up, look it up on Google. They don't pay taxes. Right. Uh, they have attorneys and CPAs that they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to found, find loopholes for them. And the wealthy don't pay taxes. There was a, late, a lady named Leona Helsley a long time ago and they got her for coming out and telling the general public that, you know, only the poor people pay taxes. Well, that's true because the tax code, the way it's written, it helps all these businesses and these congressmen, and these senators and all that. I'm going to give you a quick example. There's a rule called the Augusta rule. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of wealthy people in Augusta around that. I think it's the, the U S open or whatever golf masters, the masters is down there and you got all these wealthy people converging on Augusta, Georgia and whatever time of year that is. So these people wanted to rent their houses out and make money, but they didn't want to pay tax on it. So this guy knows this senator and they, you know, they talk to each other and they made a rule for these people. And it says that for 14 days, if you rent your house out for 14 days or less, you don't have to pay tax on it. Hmm. Understand that that was written for them. Now we can take advantage of that. So during the 1996 Olympics, when they were in Atlanta, I took advantage of that. I had somebody from Copenhagen, Denmark, staying in my house for 14 days. I made money and I didn't have to pay tax on it. So what I'm saying is using the law, just like the wealthy will have you come up with the results of where you're still making money, but you don't pay as much tax. 
Wow. I love it. I love it. And that's just exactly, if you don't, I think the problem is for so many people, they don't know where to get the information at. Right. And it becomes, you have to build relationships with the right people, because just like you said, the wealthy, what they do is they don't necessarily try to create their own system of what I found, but they infiltrate the system. So what that means that they build the relationship with, like you said, the CPAs, the senators, all that, because the system's already in place. So you trying to go out and create your own system to buck up against this, not going to work. But if you can build the relationship with the people who are already creating the rules and regulations in the system, and then they'll be like, you know what, we can kind of bend it or make an exception, or here's something that we know about because we made the system, but we're not going to tell the public so everybody can benefit from it. But because I like you, here's something that you could do. And so that's the thing that I tell people all the time, like you had to have relationship because on the other side of that room, necessarily, you don't have to like the person, but you can't be mad at the information because it's here. Right. And that's what I think that you found out by working for the IRS and then also having the relationships with Joe Bannister and other people that you found out that and then you were able to take it and run with it. Now, you've mentioned a couple of different times KPG, right? Walk us through on a, on a high level overview. What is KPG? We understand it is keep, protect and grow. But talk to us about what does that mean for me? OK, so starting out at rock bottom, you have to keep what you earn. When you make money, we, we as a people sometimes want to wear our success on our backs and we want to drive it. So as opposed to, you know, having a salary that you started out at 30000 and then you get up to 50000 and within six months, you're spending that, that difference, that $20,000, because you went and bought this and that. Keeping what we earn means two things. It means not spending that money. In other words, learning what my dad taught me when I was in high school, delayed gratification, and also reducing our expenses. It's like, why is it that people are complaining to me about not having any money, and I come over for consultation to their house, and they have seven flat screen TVs. One is even in the kitchen. Okay, so those are the problems that we have. We want to go and spend all this money. We're listening to these advertisers, and we feel like we have to have all this to show success. Well, success comes from being able to execute at a high level for an extended period of time. It's not that you do something, make some money, and then go spend it. So we're all driving around in Benzes and Beamers and all that other stuff. If you can afford it, that's great. But if you're struggling with a $500 car note, then you need to go get a Buick. So mm-hmm. that's keeping what you earn. So twofold, reducing your expenses and stop spending money on stuff that you really can't afford. That's the K. Protect what you earn. That's protecting it from predators. This is the Sioux United States of America. We have more lawsuits than any other country. We have more lawyers in Atlanta, Georgia, than the whole of Japan. And they're mm-hmm. all over the buses and all that. You know, one call, that's all. And, you know, when you go to the nail shop and all that, all you see in between the soap operas that they're showing is, so they're, they're encouraging people, if somebody taps you on the back of your car, to just flip out so you can go get some money. You have to protect what you earn. It's not about what you earn, it's about what you keep. And if you, if you earn it, but you haven't put systems in place to, to keep it, then you're going to lose everything you have. So keeping means protecting yourself from the IRS. In other words, using the law, like we said, making sure that you 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 know the tax code and you, and we can get into that later, but the key, the, the linchpin in that is starting a home-based business. That's mm. the linchpin in there. And also setting up companies, not having anything in your name, Warren Buffett and all those people, they know to control everything, but own nothing. They don't have stuff in their name. It's all in LLCs and corporations and trust and all that. The Bill right. and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Warren Buffett Foundation. I want a foundation. Well, I have one, but 
you know, I, that's what I said. I want a foundation. How do I get a foundation? But we're not paying attention to that. We're looking at the electronic income reducer, which is the TV. We're sitting there watching Empire while they build an empire and you go broke. So right. that's the, the protect. Protect from the predators. The IRS, um, the, the state taxing agencies, the lawyers and all that, and people that want to sue you for what they think you have. And then the grow part. That's growing wealth. There's, there's a way to grow wealth. You get wealthy by making sure that you don't spend more than you earn for one thing, but you can't save yourself rich. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to put money in the bank or I'm going to put my, my money in a IRA or a 401k. You know, those things are failures. Hmm. That system is a failure. You've seen it fail in 2008. You see it failing now. Right. People, I know people personally that had six figures in oh. 2008 turned into only $150,000 after they had over 500000 in the blink of an eye. I don't put my money in anything that can disappear in a blink of an eye. So I teach people how to how to get their money and get hard assets, silver, gold, real estate, international real estate. I have two properties in Costa Rica. I know how to do this. So from the time I got out in 2011, I got off paper in 2012. And, and, and by the time 2016 came along, I was back to six figures. So this is the system that I use. I love Robert, Robert Kiyosaki and all those people out there that are teaching, but they're teaching on a level that we're not that they're with the things that they talk about are for people that already have money. I listened recently to uh, one of his new uh, videos and it's, it's great video if you already got money, but he's not telling people and they're not telling people, how do I start from rock bottom? How do I start with what I have? And so let's talk about that because you mentioned a home-based business and obviously you've mentioned rock bottom a couple of times and anybody who just heard your story is like, wow, how do you start from rock bottom and be able to quickly, you know, KPG? Okay. So what do I have? I have this, uh, this form. I had a life coach a long time ago and he gave us this one piece of paper and I call it questions to design your future. So you got to sit back, first of all, and say, you know, what do I want? There are eight questions on there, but I'm going to tell you the first three. The first question is, what do I want? The second question is, why do I want it? And the third one is, what am I, what am I willing to give up to get it? Hmm. That's, where, that's where most of the problem happens, because we want these things, but we're going to sit up and watch TV, or we're going to go to the movies, or we're going to play the, you know, those games and all that. You got to give up something to get what you want. So reflection is the first part of that. Once you figure out what you want, you figure out where you're passionate. What is it that you like to do? I don't, I don't recommend anybody start a home-based business that is going to be drudgery. Most of the clients and most of the people that I work with, they have a full-time job and I know they're tired when they get home, but if you really want success, remember I told you about that high level activity, you got to come home. You got to decompress for an hour or two, play with your children. If you have them, spend time with your spouse. And then you got to stay up, not looking at the 11 o'clock news, but, but doing work on that home-based business. So mm -hmm. most of the clients that I have, they start and grow a home-based business from scratch with, with a, with a part-time or full-time job and get to grow that business up. And I got one successful client out of New York that has two successful home-based businesses. So that's the key to it. We're not going to grow wealth with our job. You know, a job in education and, and college is highly overrated. I wouldn't recommend anybody go to college these days unless they're going after something that requires a license like a doctor or, or a CPA, because there's so many people that I know out there now personally that never went to college and they're making, you know, a million dollars a year, uh, at least $500,000 a year, much more than the person that makes a job. And it's easy. It's easy to do when you create something one time 
and then you sell it to millions of people. Like the, I have eight books now. I make money in my sleep because people are buying books. I don't know why people in New Zealand or, or Australia or wherever would want to buy my books, but they do. So, you know, Amazon, even though they take a lot of it, I still have access to the whole world. Multiple so creating, of revenue. creating a product or service, some kind of home-based business where you can get it out there to the world and then money is going to be coming into your lap. Got it. Yes, I, I love it. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that as well. What's one business that you've seen that you were shocked to see that it really took off? Have you because you've probably seen a lot of different home based businesses? Is there one that you've seen that you hope to climb with that you were like, uh, I don't, and then it just took off, and you're like, wow, okay, anybody can really do this. All of the businesses that I've seen that I've helped people uh, work on that are growing, they're different businesses, but they all have one thing in common. They're all selling online, whether it be that person's product or whether they're brokering a product, they're white labeling it. In other words, you have a product, let's say some kind of uh, natural oil, and they let you put your name on it. So you get that oil for $3 and you're able to sell it for eight. And you put that on on Amazon, you put that on, on eBay and Shopify and all that. And and make money. So those are those are the ones that are taking off. So if you have a cell phone, if you have access to a computer and internet, you can make money. Instead of sitting there talking on it all day or looking at movies, then you're creating a business. Uh, I have uh, some people that have started daycares in their home. You know, they like children and they and they're getting guaranteed money from the government because these these uh, parents are getting money from the government. So a lot of people like that. Some people are making money by renting part of their home if they have a basement or if they have a room there those are the kind of easy simple ways to do things uh but just starting a business with not a lot of money i'm not saying go out and, and buy a franchise or go out and put three thousand dollars into some kind of a you know network marketing or anything like that uh, i'm not against network marketing at all but when you when you join a network marketing you're getting a percentage of a percentage and the energy that it would take me to go out and market someone else's product and get a percentage of a percentage, I can take that same energy and, and make and produce my own product and get 100%. Got Plus, I, I get all the write-offs. I write off everything but the kitchen sink. There's something called ordinary and necessary business expenses, which, which are uh, ordinary means that they're acceptable, they're business expenses that are acceptable. So I'm going to give you this crazy example. So there's this lady. Her name is Cindy Hess, and I think it was in 94, she wrote off a breast enlargement on her tax return, and the, and the IRS laughed until they fell out, and they took away her deduction for her breast enlargement. But then she went to tax court with her lawyers, and she won. Guess why? Because Cindy Hess, better known as Chesty Love, was a pole dancer, and mm. it was ordinary and necessary for her because she was getting older, and she had to keep up with competition. So they let her write off her breast enlargement, and see, if Cindy Hess can write off her breast enlargement, you better be sure that it's easy for you to write off anything that you can prove that's an ordinary and necessary business expense. So that means when I go to Costa Rica, I've got property there. I got to check on the property. That's a business expense. If I go to California to, to talk to a couple of people about doing a joint venture and I stay for a week, that's a business expense. When I go to the grocery store, I take my mileage. Mileage is 54 cents a mile. So every two miles I drive, as long as I make that trip a business expense, I'm writing off a dollar. So writing off everything with the kitchen sink is nothing different than what the wealthy are doing. 
I love it. I love it. Who was your biggest mentor as you got out, right? And and you started to now look at the online world. Because in the beginning, when you said you were doing seminars, you were traveling all across the world, of course, that's a lot of offline. And that looked a lot different in the 80s and the 90s, you know, as opposed to where we are today. What yeah. you mentioned, Robert Kiyosaki, and I'm very familiar with him and many of other people, like most entrepreneurs, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, was had some type of monumental effect on us um, in some way. I know it did for me at least, but did you have a mentor outside of someone that just, did you have a mentor that really helped you to accelerate your mindset? I did. I did. So what, before prison, when I was doing the, the tax seminars and stuff, I would look at Robert Kiyosaki and all those and, you know, get information from them. When this, when this uh, whole trial and tax thing hit uh, and I came home at rock bottom, I started paying attention to, I was looking for somebody that could help me from where you were at that time. And, and really, I, I didn't find anybody. I looked at, there's a group called the Wealth Factory, uh, which wow. used to be the Elevation Group. I joined that group and they had some good tips and things, but mostly for people on a higher level. So I started having, by the way, let me segue and say that a lot of white people came to me and they said, you know, we, we really enjoy your courage. We want to help you. So they were not only helping monetarily, but they actually shared a lot of knowledge. And I, I got a lot of knowledge from them also. However, I got a, a, a Facebook from a guy named Myron Golden. Myron Golden is an international speaker. And Myron brought me up out of this. I was going one way and Myron just took me and set me down and taught me how to, you know, turn all of this into uh, what it is today. Get, you know, get up. You know, I wasn't speaking. He asked me, was I speaking? And I said, no, because I wasn't speaking since I was speaking about the taxes. So he got me to the point where I was speaking. He was the one that encouraged me to write my third and fourth financial book which are how to stick it to the IRS and how to escape the rat race. So listening to him and taking his advice, however unconventional some of it was, got me to the point where from the time I met him in 2015, when I was making nothing to the time at the end of 2016, I was at six figures. Got it. Yes. Shout out to Myron Golden. Uh, He's definitely somebody who's inspired not only me, but I know many of my friends because we're in the ClickFunnels world. Okay. Um, So yes, if you're a funnel hacker, you definitely know Myron Golden. And even if you aren't, I think looking, he has so much profound knowledge just out there online that you can get wisdom from. So no, I I love that. Talk to me about what was in your comeback scenario, what was your biggest obstacle? Was it your mindset? Was it your resources? What, what was it for you? You know, I've always had very high self-esteem. <laughs> that was one of the things my father taught me. Even as dark as I am, he would always say the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice and all that, just making sure. He wouldn't let us watch stuff like the Little Rascals and shows that demeaned Black people. So I always had a pretty high self-esteem. That wasn't the problem. The problem was resources. When you get out, you don't have any resources. I learned some strategies to use the money that I had and put it in a special kind of insurance policy and create my own cash flow banking. That was one of the things I learned from the wealth factory people. So hmm. getting a little knowledge like that to, to make sure that I have access to that money forever instead of just paying a bill. Um, doing, you know, those are the kind of things that, that, that changed me around. So I just, uh, it was the resources at first. And once the resources started coming in, then the whole world opened up. I was able to, I've always wanted to travel even before prison. I, I had put $10,000 down on a condo in Panama, but then uh, one of my clients, showed me a great opportunity in Costa Rica. So I ended up getting properties there. And, you know, from there you, you start hearing things. And when you're hearing things, it's frustrating when you don't have the resources. Right. But you find ways to get the resources to get these things done. That's all the wealthy people do. They, you know, it says the rich get richer because they use their money not to go buy stuff that are liabilities, but to get more assets. 
I love it. Hey, do you have a favorite book? I mean, you mentioned, I mean, something that we haven't already talked about. If somebody right now is at rock bottom and they're looking to, to read something they love to read or even a favorite YouTube channel or something like that, aside from your own, what do you think? Well, of course, my favorite book is the Bible. The Bible, the Bible has so much knowledge about wealth. Solomon was the first financial consultant because he used to get money every year from the kings and, and people all over the world. He was a consultant, and that's what we've learned. But that alone has taken the Jews to where they are. You know, they're a very small percentage of the world, but they're, they got their hands in everything. And it's not, you know, don't hate on them. Look at what they're doing. There's yeah. a book out there called Thou Shalt Prosper by Daniel Lappin, and he is a uh, Messianic Jew. And he has a couple of other books that show you how they got where they are. They teach their children. The children in Hebrew school learn how to balance a checkbook. In our high schools, they're not even teaching kids about finances. And I think that's all by design. Right now, I'm just pursuing a lot of different books that are helping me get more information to help my clients with the KPG, keeping what they earn, protect what they earn, and grow what they earn. So books about entrepreneurship. I don't read a lot simply because I'm so busy creating my content. I have a Patreon page, so I'm creating content for that. And I'm doing a lot of research for my clients to make sure that the IRS doesn't smash them. But yeah, the the um, the Bible is is the number one book on finances. If you look if you look into it, you really see. I love it. There's somebody out there super um, excited to learn more from you, right? They want to blaze their path just as you've done. Um, they um, want to be able to connect with their clients in so many ways, but. They have that little voice in their head and that little voice says that they're not strong enough, they're not smart enough, or maybe they just don't have enough resources. What's the one thing that you would say to that person to get them to just take action? I would tell them to get a mentor. I would, because all of the Caucasian people that I know, the ones, especially the younger ones that are already at a million dollar point, I ask them, how is it that you got there? It always involved a mentor. It always involved somebody picking me up. Uh, one of my compatriots said that and when he was 19 years old, somebody saw the brightness in him. And now he's got two doctorate degrees, a master's degree, and is a millionaire. Because mm -hmm. at he's, he was in his 30s when he said that. Somebody picked him up at 19. We don't do that. We don't sometimes we don't trust each other or for whatever reason. Invest in yourself. Uh, I took money and I invested in myself. I got the training that I needed to get to where I need to go. Oh, you know, you want to you want to hold on to this money. I'm not gonna. I'm not giving him that money. I'm not giving her that money. Then you want to go out and buy, you know, a new car. You got new shoes. You got Gucci. You got Versace. You got Coach, but you don't have anything to put in it. You don't have anything to put in that co Coach purse. Get a mentor, somebody that's not just teaching in the classroom. I'm not talking about going to school. I'm talking about get with somebody who who is already doing what you want to do and get trained by them. Because I think that's the only way that you're going to get anywhere. Because it's not it's not going to be in a book. And just like you said, people are not out there telling people this stuff readily. No. Get a mentor. I love it. It's sound, sound advice. For anybody, we'll make sure that we have the links in the show notes. But for anybody who wants to stay connected with you, where can they find you at? Wakethepeople.com. Wakethepeople.com is my website. I also have Patreon where I teach every week and have uh, interviews with different people every week on subjects. My, my current series is called How to Start and Grow a Home-Based Business, and that'll be a 12-week series. My next series is going to be the 10 Life Values. How do we actually get a balance on our lives? Because you're not going to be good in business if you don't have a balance in your life. But patreon.com slash Jackson. 
is that one. But you know, I'm just I'm out there. My YouTube has a lot of little teachings on it. So I'm, I'm easy to find. My life is an open book. I'm very I'm in the uh, metro Atlanta area in Stone Mountain. And I'm here to help people thrive and not just survive every day. I love it. Well, there you have it, Dream Nation. This has been another one. And I hope that you've learned something because there has been so many nuggets that have been dropped. And I want to be the first one to say, Ms. Jackson, thank you very much for coming on. Dream Nation, just as she said, you got to get a mentor, but more importantly, you got to take action. Otherwise, it'll only merely be a fantasy. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side.